Today we speak with Japanese scholar Kohei Sato, whose book, Marx in the Anthropocene, sold over half a million copies. In it, Sato shows how late in life Marx came to a richer sense of production when he realized that there was a law above the economic as he conceived it. It was the law of nature. Marx saw how disturbing nature's metabolism could bring about a rift that set destructive ripples across human life. Today we make the connection between that scholarly book and Kohei's new book, Slow Down, which has just come out in English translation. Here he offers a sharp critique of liberal and socialist attempts to sustain, such as the Green New Deal, and argues for a radical form of degrowth communism that decelerates our compulsion to add more stuff into the world in whatever form and derails our compulsion to sustain rather than revolutionize. Sato argues that we can lead a much happier and more healthy lives if we emphasize use value and revitalize democracy so we all have a hand in deciding what exactly is valuable. Speaking Out of Place is produced in collaboration with the creative process and is made with support from Stanford University. I alone am responsible for his content. Let me start by provoking you. What's wrong with the Green New Deal? Ah, okay. It just simply repeats what capitalism has been doing. Green New Deal presents itself as a kind of radical policy. If you look at the content, it's just simply the continuation of what capitalism wants to do. It's a massive investment in new, allegedly green industries with the creation of more jobs with higher wages. But these are not the things that socialists or any environmentalists should be actually seeking after because we recognize that capitalism is basically the root cause of the climate crisis and the misery of the workers. If so, I think it is high time to imagine something radically very different from business as usual with capitalism. Green New Deal is a new opiate to masses because it simply presents workers with old ideas of higher wages, creation of jobs, and abundance of consumer goods, and so on. No, I like the fact that you begin by debunking sustainable development goals because in a way the question becomes for me, what's being sustained here? Right. It's actually capitalism that's being sustained uh, under the guise of this sort of greenwashing operation, which makes everybody feel like we're saving the planet when in actuality, we're just moving the pieces around, but the structure stays pretty much the same. So I want to begin by that, but I'd like to now ask you, what's the journey between Marx and the Anthropocene to slow down? In other words, two very different books in some ways, many things carry on in spirit, but you're writing for a slightly different audience, a slightly different purpose. What led you to make that journey? Exactly, Marx in the Anthropocene, which is in a kind of continuation of my previous book, Karl Marx's Eco-Socialism. Karl Marx's Eco-Socialism got the Deutsche Prize, but the problem was that was based on my dissertation. So I looked at Marx's notebooks on natural science, and then I discovered how much Marx was actually interested in ecological questions. But the problem is the book, the title is Karl Marx's Eco-Socialism. But if you read that the book, I don't talk much about eco-socialism. It's actually the title that the publisher mm. gave. And that was not my original title because the, I wrote the book in German, Gegen Kapital. So it's like it's nature against capital. It's a kind of the limitation of nature or limitation of capital imposed by nature. That was my original title, but when it was translated into English, it got a different title. And then some reader said, 
hey, Kohei, you, you actually don't talk much about eco-socialism. And then I also recognize that problem exactly. I also got some other reactions from the readers. Okay, so Marx is an ecologist, but so what? He doesn't know about climate change and so on. So that was the two challenges that I got after the publication of the book. One thing was I wanted to develop more concretely what Marx's idea of eco-socialism was. And that was the starting point of my book, Marx in the Anthropocene. So it is a more academic book. And I researched more extensively on other notebooks, on notebooks on natural sciences, but also notebooks on pre-capitalist society, non-Western societies. And that really led me to a more precise definition of Marx's eco-socialism, which is degrowth communism. What that means, we can maybe talk later. I think uh, that was a very uh, new idea, which I wanted to put forward in that book. But then in order to answer the second challenge, so what? Marx was a degrowth communist, but still the reaction could be, so what? <laughs> so in the popularized slowdown, I write for the general audience, and it is more concretely about today's climate crisis and today's alternative to capitalism in the Anthropocene. And there, I wanted to present why it is important to read Marx today, again, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, if you want to reach capitalism, climate change. And I wanted to demonstrate how Building upon Marx's vision of post-capitalism, we can imagine a different kind of future. So this is more like a concrete kind of my philosophical intervention in the contemporary issues of capitalism and the environment. Well, I really wanted to compliment you on how gracefully you make this transition because it's not only bringing Marx into our lives in a very special and important way, but also changing our own lives, our ways of thinking about things like living together, work, labor, all these things that we can talk about in, in deeply philosophical ways and in terms of Marx's writings, but you translate it so beautifully into how we can live together, how we can regard work, not just as an abstraction, but as we perform it ourselves, how we can imagine what an object is and, and what value we can assign to it rather than the dictates of the market. But that we can arrive at a sense of value, not individually, but working together to find out what's meaningful to us as a group. It helps us understand the implications of the imperial mode of living, which has been set up as the standard for the world. Talk more about the imperial mode of living. It's the imperial mode of living is a concept that was put forward by Ulrich Plant and Max Wissen, two German sociologists. And... That basic idea is rather simple. Uh, so the prosperity and affluence of the people in the global north is actually at the cost of other people and other kinds of groups in somewhere else, which is usually uh, people in the global south. And when we consume more electric vehicles, what happens? The problem is there's a likelihood that there will be much more massive extraction of rare metals and other resources in the global south. So when I criticize Green New Deal, the advocates of the Green New Deal often do not address this issue of imperial mode of living. Green New Deal can be easily turned into a method sustaining the gr green imperial mode of living. People think just buying Tesla car would be enough for something 
that they can do for the planet. And they stop thinking about how the Tesla car is produced and what kind of materials and the resources and the energies the production of a Tesla car requires and where these resources and energy come from. And it is often the case that the environmental impacts of producing massive amount of cars is shifted to somewhere else. That becomes invisible in the global north and especially among the rich people. But the problem is the cost is always there. And the imperial mode of living is a way of making these true costs invisible by transporting that cost to somewhere else far away. And the globalization made it possible. But the, today's problem in the Anthropocene is this shifting of the cost becomes harder and harder because not only the US and EU and Japan, but also other countries, China, India, Brazil, all competing for the new resources and energies. And then there will be normal spaces that we can shift that cost or burden to somewhere else. So the Anthropocene is a situation where the entire surface of the planet is fully covered by the traces of human economic activities. And that means that we can no longer shift the burdens to somewhere else. And here, there will be much more competition over resources, but there's also much more competition over the possibility of shifting the burden to somewhere else. And here we see the tension between Japan, China, US, China, and Russia, and so on. And this tension has to do with this situation of the main contradiction appearing in the Anthropocene. Right. And you quote Bill McKibben about, there's no place else to go. We only have one planet. And we had Bill on the show last week, and we spoke a lot about that. You talk about metabolic rift, but you also talk about other kinds of rifts, like spatial and temporal. Could you tie those three together? In other words, start with Marx's understanding of metabolic rift in terms of production, but then also about the rifts of temporality and spatiality. Yeah, the imperial mode of living is developed by Ulrich Brandt and Marx Thyssen without really directly referring to Marx's writings. But I think the basic idea is already there in my own text. And here is the idea of metabolic rift comes into the play. And basically, my interpretation of Marx is based on Marx's theory of metabolism. My theory is not really about exploitation of workers. I think the central concept for Marx is not exploitation, but metabolism. Here's my idea. Basically, Marx says that these humans have to work up on nature, and then they have to extract resources and energies in order to produce something. And they also consume after the production, and then they throw things that are unnecessary back to the nature. So there's some kind of circular process, energy and the resources that we can call it social metabolism. And that kind of analysis is already developed in various ways. And Marx says this metabolism between human and nature is a transhistorical essential condition as long as humans or any other living beings want to stay or live up on this planet. But the problem is capitalism transforms and reorganizes uh, this metabolic process between human nature in a very unique way because capitalism basically aims after the infinite valorization of capital. And that means capital always tries to accelerate its investment and circuit of capital, but also it continues to expand in this process of capital accumulation. And what happens is the metabolism of society characterized by the flow of money and commodity becomes bigger and bigger and becomes faster and faster. But the problem is the metabolism of nature 
is independent of the movement of commodity and money and capital. So at one moment, social metabolism and metabolism nature become disrupted. Nature cannot catch up with the speed of social metabolism, the acceleration of capital. So here emerges, according to Marx, a kind of rift between the social metabolism and metabolism nature. And this is what he says, irreparable rift emerges in capitalism. This is what Marx says in volume three of Capital. And the problem is then, then there will be resortion of resources, excessive deforestation, and different kinds of disruption of metabolic process between human and nature. And of course, capital doesn't simply accept this kind of problem. And they try to find some other kinds of resources they try to invent new technology to exploit new energy and resources again and again. So the technology develops, but that doesn't completely heal the rift, but rather it simply shifts the rift to somewhere else, like the imperial mode of living, or it makes it the problem even deeper because it tried to exploit resources even from other areas and even deeper places and so on. So that technological way of fixing the rift actually doesn't fix the rift, but only shift the rift. Well, there are other ways. It can also temp spatially shift the rift by exploiting the resources in the global north. So the people in the global north thinks that all the air and water and other things becomes much cleaner, but at the cost of worsening of the environment in the global south and exploitation of poor people and destruction of the ecology and the living of the indigenous people and so on. And the third aspect is actually the temporal shift, because if you look at the problem of climate change, it is quite obvious. The older generation consumed a lot of things and they are more responsible for the accumulation of carbon dioxide in the air. But who are the ones who suffer more from this carbon dioxide? Of course, the later generations. So there's a temporal shift until this problem of climate change really becomes obvious to many people. And profiting from that time lag, the fossil fuel industries can exploit more of the fossil fuels in order to maximize their own profit before things become really worse and so on. What struck me as I was reading your book is how these rifts are often either invisibilized or rationalized through a weird kind of moralism, right? That the, these people are behind anyway, or they wouldn't know what to do with wealth anyway, or they're perfectly happy. So could you talk more about race and colonialism as it affects your analysis? Yes, yes. Because the whole point of shifting the metabolic rift is ensuring a better life for the people, mainly in the global north, but mainly the people who have more access to power and money. So the problem is obviously under capitalism, under racial capitalism, those who have power and money are white, male, and other kind of the people with other privileges. But the problem is all those people try to continue the sustainable living by consuming ecological products and so on. In fact, the, all the problems, all the costs, all the true costs of producing those sustainable products they still require a lot of energy and resources. And that are actually beyond, far beyond the sustainable level of living. If everyone on this planet are 
supposed to live in a just and sustainable way. So the, all these true costs are simply shifted to who are more vulnerable, actually, to the environmental damages. But the problem is they are also the ones who are less responsible for the current crisis of the environment. So this is a really classical issue of environmental injustice. And this tendency is rather accelerated, not admitted explicitly, and they are not really tackled in order to create a better and just society. They are making it invisible so that we don't have to see it every day. And this is exactly what the technologies under capitalism are often making it possible. So the problem is technologies are... So this is a very important insight for Marx. Marx came to realize he used to believe when he was young that technologies are always progressive and increases productive forces. So they are basically emancipatory. But Marx, after developing this theory of metabolic lift and metabolic shift, he came to recognize that these technologies developed under capitalism often simply enforces the power of capital to exploit from workers and nature. And it also reinforces the power of capital to sustain the current inequality between the global north and global south or justify the imperial mode of living and so on. And then he starts to question whether these capitalist technologies are really progressive. And his answer is basically no. These are only the tools of robbery from nature and the robbery of humans. And these are not the ways of achieving post capitalist society. So here, his whole idea of historical materialism and how we get to socialism and these strategical question starts to humble. And this is a crisis that he had to deal with in his late life. Right. Technology is supposed to be geared toward giving us more time, but under capitalism, it's just more time to be exploited, right? It's, that, that time exists free. I want to talk about this idea of rationalizing domination through the idea of freedom. And I, I, let me explain what I mean by that. I had a, a guest on a few months ago named Naomi Oreskes. I don't know if you know her. She's at Harvard. Yeah. She wrote a great book at, about how any kind of governmental action toward containing the damage of climate change was very early removed by the oil industry in the 1940s, I believe, by this group called the American Manufacturers Association that sold the notion that to constrain production would be essentially communism, right? That it would be a way of denying Americans their freedom. And this attaches obviously to the idea of a free market, but it percolates down to everyday life. And what gets instilled is this notion of communism as this dull, bleak, oppressive, one-size-fits-all notion of society. So could you talk about how you counter that caricature and, and that false notion of freedom with an entirely different notion of how communism could save us from the, the horrible damage that co capitalism has perpetrated? For because environmentalists often demand some kind of regulation against pollution and emission of carbon dioxide and so on. And many people react, oh, this is eco-dictatorship. They are trying to take away our freedom and so on. What's this freedom that many people want to keep enjoying? 
On the one hand, this freedom is based upon the imperial model freedom, which means at the cost of other people's freedom, freedom at the cost of freedom of future generations and so on. So this is really the negation of many people's freedom. And secondly, the problem is, are we really free in capitalism? And here again, traditional critique raised by Marx is very important. He says, basically, people under capitalism are not really free because they are at the mercy of the movement of money and commodity. And so we are always compelled to work harder in order to gain money. And we spend those money to buy new fashion, new food, new cars, new houses, and so on. So we keep consuming and then we lose our money and we have to work hard and then new products come out and advertisement make look those new products attractive and we buy so on. So this repetition of buying, consuming and working are not really satisfying us because once we satisfy, we stop buying and then that's bad for capitalism. So it is a built-in structure of capitalism that we never get satisfied. And the problem is that means that we never become really truly happy. And by repeating this process, we also destroy the planet. So there's nothing good about this process. And capitalism still try to make sure that we will be one day satisfied and become happy. But that's not the case. And that's what Marx said. Now, this is a very simplified version of his theory of reification. And the problem is, so then communism actually, or degrowth communism, proposes a very different idea of freedom. Because once we realize under capitalism, we are never really free. We are compelled to work, produce, and consume, and so on, by limiting our desires, especially our consumptionist desires. By taking distance from this constant pressure of working and producing and consuming, so by self-limiting some of the behaviors under capitalism that we take for granted, we gain different kinds of satisfied happiness, well-being, and that means freedom too. That if we try to consume less and if we try to spend our time in nature or something like that, or we do sports instead of going to shopping mall, we gain some more freedom to spend our time, spend our money in a very different way. And these are the, some of the first attempt to realize it is not a very revolutionary. It is something that we can always do right now. But these are the ways of recognizing how actually freedom can be developed in a different way, even within capitalism. This is the first step. And we can develop other ways of behavior, other ways of interaction with other people, not mediated by money and thinking of how we can gain more profit and so on. And so this is, I would say, that by self-limiting, people can gain different kinds of freedom. And this is just the first step of realizing or imagining a different kinds of living for the future. Right. You know, and capital, the last thing that capital would want is for us to be happy. That would be its nightmare if we were satisfied with life, right? We all, we, every time we get something, as you say, we feel like we need more to be better in some ways. And it struck me, we did an interview with a plant biologist named Paco Calvo, who has a great book called Plant. And he said a lot of the, the devaluation of plant life is that plants can't move. And the response he gave is, 
but plants being rooted are just much more attuned to their environment. They're not going any place. So they have to deal with their immediate environment in a way that they can't escape it, they can't move away from it, but they appreciate and they understand the necessity of being in that place. I wanted to say that also that one of the things you talk about in your book is that in place of a value imposed upon things by capital, you're arguing for use value. You're arguing also for people in common to deliberate as to what we should care about, right? And it should be ground up, not top down. And one of the most powerful moments in the book is when you talk about mutual care, right? When, when we value each other, not things. Could you talk a little bit about care? Exactly. Because when people hear the word communism, people often think about dictatorship, the state ownership, and huge bureaucracy and so on. But that's just simply an imposition of Soviet-style socialism upon the anti-history and the ideas of socialism and communism, of course, which has much wider and richer and diverse meanings and traditions and interpretations and so on. So in my book, I try to stress that Marx also changed his view of communism. And when he talks about communism, it is not about ecological dictatorship. It is not about central planning necessarily. It is about democratic creation of the commonwealth, the rehabilitation of commonwealth. So the society based on the commons is basically communism. But the problem is capitalism commodifies anything, commodifies all, even, the, even those things that everyone needs for living, water, education, healthcare, transportation, all these things are commodified. That means that if we don't have money, we lose access to those basic goods. And that means we are compelled to work even harder in order to gain money. And then we basically spend all those money for paying education, medical care, housing, and so on. So in order to stop this, Marx's proposal is basically simple. We need to decommodify basic services and goods. But that doesn't have to be the state fully decommodified everything. So actually, we can plan to decommodify the basic services and goods in a democratic manner too. And then this is, I try to put forward different ways of building the cooperatives and building the social businesses. And there are many attempts in all over the world to rehabilitate the commonwealth. And these are, once we expand the sphere of commonwealth, we, you know, we cannot abandon, we cannot overcome capitalism by simply introducing free education, right? So this is just simply a reform within capitalism. But once it is possible to make the education free for everyone, people start to behave in a different way. Because, for example, in the U.S., the tuition is very expensive and students get loans. So then after graduation, students are often compelled to look for jobs with higher wages, investment bankers, consulting, and so on. They are really limiting the future possibilities. But if you look at societies like Germany, where education is free, people can stay at the university for many, many years because they don't have to pay tuition fee. And then after graduation, they don't have any loans at all. So they can freely choose to work in NGOs or they can start new businesses, something good for the environment and society. So it really opens up different life choices. And then the society also creates some more rooms for mutual aid and mutual care because 
when you have loan, when you have debt, and when you are struggling to pay for your wages, pay for your houses and so on, there will be more competition and there is no room for helping other people. You just think about yourself. But if your basic life, your basic needs are often guaranteed, the satisfaction of your basic needs are satisfied or guaranteed, you have more room for spending your time for helping other people, caring about other people, caring the nature and so on. So my argument is actually Marx is thinking about transforming our way of life, freeing ourselves from the constant pressure of reification and the commonwealth is the basis for it. The rehabilitation of commonwealth and the abundance of those kind of commonwealth, or one can say the public luxury, the rehabilitation of public luxury, free access, free abundant access to education, for example. This is not environmentally bad, but this is very good for culture and its justice and many good things is implied in this social abundance or the public abundance of education. And we can expand this to public abundance of transportation, public transportation, of course, public abundance of internet, free internet, public abundance of medical care, free medical care. So this decommodification really creates the spheres of freedom for everyone, and it provides the basis for more mutual cared kind of society. Right. And as much as capitalism hates happiness, it hates abundance. And again, that's the last thing that would want. So much of what you said resonates with me, especially with my discussions with my students who are faced exactly with this idea of interminable debt. And also the fact that they basically have gone into debt, not for an education. In other words, they're here, but they feel like they have to always think of a major or field of concentration that will be able to repay that. So it's a vicious cycle. And one student of mine who went to law school said, you know, the understanding is that once you get out of law school, the next five years, you're doing somebody else's taxes. You're accounting for getting somebody else to be able to pay into the Commonwealth. Yes. Could you talk about democracy? Because that's one of the big things you mentioned it several times in your comment. What different notion of democracy do we need? Yeah. So in the sense that I am a generation which is greatly inspired by Occupy Wall Street. So the 1% against 99%, so that really the today's democracy is actually not really democracy because it is simply ruled by. And my question as a graduate student was how we can really expand the democracy to the rest of 99% people. And then I came to also realize that when we think about democracy of 99%, we still only think about Japan. Well, the U.S., so we only, we is limited to the current population within one nation state. And, but that's not democracy. If that democracy is based on the massive exploitation of resources and cheap labor in the global south somewhere else, the imperial mode of living. So the imperial mode of living is not a democratic mode of living. So I think we need to expand the conception of democracy to include other people in other areas, other countries, but also include future generations, which is obviously very hard, but at the, as a goal, as an ideal, this is something that we need to strive after. And then I think the option is only degrowth communism because other ways of greening capitalism, Green New Deal, 
or sustainable eco-socialism, which is also characterized by the kind of more growth controlled by workers or something like that. These are the things that in the end cannot help destroying or exploiting other people or environment or taking the wealth of the future generations and so on. So my idea is more democratic governing governance of wealth, resources, and more mutual aid and so on. These are the things that I think only thing that we can achieve with a radical transformation to degrowth kind of thinking, which is very hard, especially in the U.S. I think the degrowth is still not very popular, but I think uh, especially the left and the environmentalists needs to really pay attention to this new concept of degrowth and because that is only really the only way that we can achieve climate justice and establish a more sustainable society, I would say. Yeah, no, I agree with you completely because if we, as you say, take the drug of the Green New Deal, then our minds are still in the same place. Our patterns of consumption have not changed at all. It's just basically redistributing things a bit in a more equitable way. It's not bad. It's a progress, but yeah. it's, the yeah. progress is not enough. Exactly. But it, will, but it can be bad if it makes us complacent, right? If we stay in that repetition, it just basically, this is something that Bill McKibben talked about, it buys us some time but we have very little time left, right? So we can't be lax with ourselves. I would like to have you talk more about listening to voices from the global South, the very populations that have suffered the most from our habits. Do you know the film by a director named Raj Patel called The Ants and the Grasshopper? No, I haven't seen the film, but I, yeah, I know Raj Patel, yeah. Yeah, it's a great film in that he goes to Malawi and he meets two incredible climate activists and he brings them to the United States to meet members of Congress. And of course, they, they don't get an immediate meeting. So they take a tour from the east of the United States to the west. And they go through the, the Midwest, which is the great agricultural lands. And all along the way, he's arranged for them to meet farmers. And it's a very depressing film in that the farmers are polite and they listen and they might even be sympathetic. But in the end, it goes nowhere. I mean, they are not listening. The only people who listen are a group of, and I think you, it's very much like Detroit, which I think you talk about, but this is Oakland when you have black organic farmers who are in a community. So can you talk a little bit about how people don't listen to voices from the global South, but then when they do, what kinds of things can happen? And you mentioned Barcelona, for example. So maybe that would be something you would talk from. Yeah, it is very easy to ignore the voices of the global South. If you live in the US or in Japan, we don't encounter them and we hear some of the voices in the news and radio show and so on, but we can easily turn it down. So it is very hard. I often appear on TV and radio and then talk about these kind of issues and some of the audiences feel like they, are, they get criticized, they, get, they feel like they are yeah. denied because they also cherish, they enjoy they value their own way of life, but that is characterized by this exploitation and destruction. So they feel like they are being denied uh, by uh, what I say. If you think about it, if you really, the problem is we can no longer really ignoring these negative aspects of our affluence and prosperity because the planet is after all connected and the damages are still today often marginalized and shifted to somewhere else 
But countries like Japan or even U.S., living in even in New York, we are encountering all the negative impacts of climate change today. So the time is still there. And if we keep ignoring, of course, the one who suffer more and faster are the poor ones in global south. But at the same time, this will be also coming to global north. And then they are also hitting our children and grandchildren. So I think it is not that hard anymore to imagine the real impact of climate change together with other people in other areas and so on. And so I think, of course, it's still very hard because our life is fully integrated in the capitalist mode of living. But at the same time, there are many cracks emerging. And I think all those movements, Fridays for Future, Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, the Let's Degeneration, and all those movements are really now demanding basically the transition to degrowth kind of economy. And they are basically demanding to stop capitalism. And pushed by that younger generations, the voices of younger generations, they're the ones who are paying more attention to the voices of the global south. And pushed by those people, there are local attempts, new NGOs, new civilian groups, and new cooperatives, but also there are some local governments, especially, yes, when I, which I talk about with the example of the city of Barcelona, there are local governments that have more progressive policies and they are regulating cars, they are regulating advertisements, they are also regulating construction of new shopping malls and so on. These rethinking our previous way of life by limiting cars, domestic flights, and we can include new measures like ban private jet, ban crude ships and individual yachts and so on. By introducing those ideas, I think there are ways to create different kinds of living based on more racial justice, more mutual cares, and the protection of the environment. And so, so this is, all those things are still at the premature stage. We are experimenting everywhere. But once things work out, and I think there are the tendencies in the U.S. too. So once these tendencies and possibilities emerge, we should only accept, but to where? I think that we need also the direction. Mm. And yeah. sometimes in the environmentalist movements, it's not clear. And I think we should openly criticize capitalism. That's one thing. But at the same time, capitalism is often criticized by socialists and Marxists, but they are the ones who are still trapped in the myth. Of so my book is an attempt to telling both red and green sides to learn from each other and integrate the new ideas of degrowth socialism or equal socialism. This is really some kind of idea, ideal. So which means the, the direction, the, the goal that we should achieve sometime in the future. But so I think with this idea that today's struggle can be more determined and can be more progressive and then bring about a better society, I believe. It's funny you mentioned being interviewed and having your audience not like you saying, don't buy so much. Do you know the climate scientist, Peter Kalmus? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he wrote the book, Be the Change You Want. And so I was talking with him and I asked him about that chapter where he talks about buy less, drive less, meditate more. I said, that really resonated with me. And he said, I'm really glad you asked that question, David, because... Nobody likes that part of my book. Nobody, uh, the popular audience, they just think, oh my God, you know, I can't have less. But 
you're right. We we can enjoy all these things only at the expense of our children. Just about one thing about the individual consumption. I'm not morally criticizing your personal consumption. It's just an opportunity to connect that personal life to the systemic issues. No, it's actually the system, transportation system, the system of car industry and so on, that really compels you to buy not just one, but two or three cars in order right. to live in California. I think it really, it's really important as a Marxist to emphasize this systematic the dimension of the system. And we need to really challenge the system. And if you want to challenge the system, of course, it's much harder to do this. So why people just buy Tesla cars? It's easy. You can do it as an individual. But if you want to change the system, you have to tell other people, you have to organize. And one thing that, because I want to leave us with some hope, you talk about this percentage that Erica Chenoweth comes up with 3.5%. And she says 3.5% of a population is active and starts not just preaching things, but embodying it. In other words, in their habits and their interactions with people, not just their slogans, then change can happen. Other people and so on. But you don't have to be disappointed with this 3.5% is a good number to start with. I think it's not like 80% of the people. It's just 3.5% of the people. If they act with you in a determined manner, you can change society. I think this message by Erika Chenoweth, I know that many people also criticize her, but I think this simple message itself is very encouraging. And so in countries like Japan, which is a very conservative society, I think the number of three points with which I ended my book is very encouraging. And many readers in Japan started to act they try to establish urban farming and they also, we also bought a piece of land in the forest and we made that forest as a common. So many people and many readers start new projects. And this is what I wanted to encourage with my book. So the change is happening in Japan. And I hope that this book will bring about further changes in the U.S. where obviously communism and degrowth are very negatively regarded, but I think the image will change with my book. Right. Well, I, I believe so too. And I think that, Koei, I think most people understand that they're not happy. They're not happy in the ways that capitalism says we ought to be happy, that we still, that's constantly accelerating and wanting more and more and always feeling you know, like you're not enough. And you give us such a powerful way of imagining life otherwise. I think your book has gone such a long way toward helping us reach that. 3.5%. Mars and Anthropocene is a great book. It's such a useful book in so many ways, especially for people who thought they understood Marx. But to translate that into a popular book that anybody can read and everybody should read, because it helps us think of something different. And I think your, your book, Slow Down, does that. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. Bye. Bye. Please take a moment to like this episode and subscribe to this podcast. This will help bring it to other people's attentions. You might also follow me on Twitter at Palumbo Liu and let us know about any subjects you would like us to cover or people or groups you'd like us to interview.